Hey, what's up, fam? This is the bonus hour for Just Human number 137. And I have put the kids to bed successfully, and I have brewed another cup of coffee. And I am down here in the studio ready to cover the rest of uh, the Danchenko news, which there's quite a bit. Um, we didn't make it all the way through the filing today on the show. I figured we wouldn't. It was 29 pages long. Uh, but there, I want to cover just a little bit at the very end of it. And then I want to hit on um, a thread from Climate Audit, actually two threads from Climate Audit that give a, a different perspective from what I am presenting. And it's kind of a risky thing for me to present because he's kind of presenting a black-pilled view. But I want to go ahead and be fair and present an alter alternative uh, take. And then, um, because he does have some good insight. And then um, we have a new filing from Durham. And uh, I, yeah, and I want to dig down on what we, what I found in this filing today that nobody is talking about. So anyway, cheers or good evening or whatever. Oh, this coffee's good. This coffee is so good. Thank you to everybody who buys me coffee with the buymeacoffee.com slash just human link or with Venmo, or with your subs to justhuman.substack.com, to locals, to all the things you guys do to support the show, you make it possible. And I am very happy to present this bonus hour to you. Um, I will try to keep it just an hour, but uh, you'll know by the time I upload this whether or not I actually did keep it to an hour. Now let's go to the black screen, because that's what we like to do first. And then let me change the size of this screen. Here we go. Here we go. Now, we didn't make it quite this far in the Danchenko filing. We didn't make it quite this far to the, I think we made it to page 19, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but Danchenko's lawyer is is has been arguing this whole time about all the reasons why Durham is a big bad man. And um, I mean, he's doing a good job as a lawyer. He's doing a, he's doing a decent job, in my opinion. And the take that Climate Audit is going to present on it is a decent take that goes to the credit of this lawyer. Now he's a high power lawyer. He's, you know, he's being paid a lot, uh, probably in a roundabout way by the Clinton machine. What's left of it. But he's also giving away details. We never knew before he gave away that nobody was challenging the, that the anonymous phone call happened. He gave away that Igor Danchenko, uh, had sources and why would he give up a source? Um, why would he out a source was the term he used. And then today, earlier in this filing, we learned about what he said about Chuck Dolan, which I'm going to touch on after I finish this. And then there's something else we learn right here, which is very interesting. Let me get to make sure it is 20, this one. Yes. Now, this section right here is titled Only the Fact. Now, remember, this is Danchenko's defense filing in opposition to Durham's motions in Lemonade. To, he's filing in opposition to items that Durham wants to present. I have evidence that Durham wants to present at trial. And um, he's also just arguing in general against Durham's case and the indictment itself, even though he's already filed a motion to dismiss. He's rehashing some of those same arguments. Only the fact of the prior counterintelligence investigation of Mr. Danchenko should be admitted at trial. So he's saying... I, you should. The only thing about the previous investigation of Danchenko from 2011, where he um, was soliciting people with access to classified information to 
he was soliciting them saying, look, if you have some access like that and you want to sell that information to me, I'm a buyer. Presumably he would be a buyer for Russia, but I mean, he could have been a Merc. Um, here we go. So he's saying you should only admit the fact. It should only be submitted to the jury that he at one time was under investigation. No details should be submitted. Now, listen to what he says here. The government seeks to admit evidence in its case in chief or to rebut a potential defense strategy that Mr. Danchenko was previously the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation over 10 years ago. On this point, Mr. Danchenko generally agrees that the proffered evidence is admissible, but likely disagrees about the extent of evidence that should be admitted at trial. It is not disputed that Mr. Danchenko was the subject of a counterintelligence investigation, nor is it in dispute that the counterintelligence investigation was closed in 2011. Likewise, it will not be in dispute that the FBI agents involved in Crossfire Hurricane investigation were well aware of the prior counterintelligence investigation. That is that it was factored into their evaluation of Mr. Danchenko, Danchenko's credibility and trustworthiness that an independent confidential source review committee accounted for the prior investigation when recommending the continued use of Mr. Danchenko as a confidential human source through December 2020. Whoa. Here we have something. Durham had said Danchenko was a paid source from, what was it, March 2017 to October 2020. Danchenko's defense attorney just said he was a CHS, confidential human source, all the way to December 2020, so three months longer than what Durham said. Well, that's that's peculiar. Um now, to finish the sentence, and the agents involved in the prior investigation were consulted and ultimately raised no objections at the time to Mr. Danchenko's continued use as a source. Now, at the time, there's a qualifier there. Now, this whole paragraph has triggered a lot of Spygate researchers because they see it and they say, see, the FBI was corrupt. And they used a corrupt source. They knew he was corrupt. They knew he had been under investigation in 2011. They knew all of this information, and yet they paid him to be a confidential human source. And they relied on him for this as a source in the Steele dossier, which they knew was incorrect and they knew was BS. And they used it all in an effort to quote unquote get Trump. Now, if you follow my show, I don't think that's exactly what happened, but I think that's the narrative that is in the mainstream on both sides which should kind of tell you something. When both sides are pushing the same narrative, especially about something like this, I always pause and say, wait a minute. Usually there's, there's a polarization here. You guys are, everybody's saying that the FBI was out to get Trump. The only difference is one side says they couldn't get him because he's clean. The other side says they couldn't get him because the FBI was corrupt. The MSM is always saying that the FBI is corrupt because they couldn't get Trump. Conservative Incorporated is saying the FBI is corrupt because they tried to get Trump. And I'm saying the FBI was never trying to get Trump. Anyway. Now, I knew to look for this 
in this filing because I had seen a tweet from Larry Beach, McCabe's Porsche on Blocks, who said, hey, there's an Easter egg here in the Danchenko opposition to Durham's Lemonades right here, December 2020. And he goes on to give some information about it. FBI's, I'm reading over here on the right side, FBI CHS's per policy must be reviewed or reevaluated every 90 days. If agents re-upped Danchenko through December 2020, that would have taken place three months earlier in September of 2020. Durham reported in his filing that Danchenko was a CHS from March 2017 through October of 2020. This means that Danchenko's CHS status did not lapse at the 90-day date, but was ended proactively due to cause for any number of reasons. Hopefully we will find, we will discover the reason during the trial. Now, now I see that's a piece of info that these Spygate researchers who know that kind of stuff, that is, that is good info right there. Shout out to McCabe's Porsche on blocks, AKA Larry Beach, because that really gives us some insight that, Hey, one, into the policy regarding CHSs so that we can infer from this late date that September was the date that his CHS status was re-up September of 2020. But since we have Durham saying his CHS status ended in October of 2020, then we can reasonably infer that there was cause something caused them to end that status in October, 2020. Was it because Durham became special counsel? Was it because Durham became special counsel or because he notified the handlers of Danchenko that he was invest, he was standing up a grand jury to investigate Danchenko, something along those lines. It'll be interesting. It'd be interesting to find out. Now the rest of this is basically more of the same. Um, it is pretty good. There are, um, it does get into Trump a little bit right here. Uh, talking about political motivation. Dis Mr. Danchenko agrees that evidence and arguments about political bias underlying his prosecution, this prosecution is generally irrelevant to the narrow, straightforward question of whether he made the materially false statements alleged in the indictment. However, the adversarial trial process does not occur in a vacuum. The manner in which special counsel framed the allegations in this case speaks for itself. An indictment spanning 111 paragraphs spread across 39 pages replete with references to which political parties and campaigns and various players supported, all to allege that Mr. Danchenko lied about two specific facts. Donald J. Trump copied and pasted many of the special counsel's allegations in his own civil RICO suit. Donald Trump's civil RICO case makes an appearance in this filing. His civil RICO case against Mr. Danchenko and numerous other defendants, which was dismissed with prejudice on September 8th, 2022. While any alleged political motivation underlying the decision to prosecute Mr. Danchenko is generally irrelevant, he does reserve to the right to test the credibility, bias, motivation, and reliability of every witness offered against him. He also reserves the right to question witnesses about the nature of the special counsel's investigative tactics when relevant and appropriate. 
the defendant cannot be barred from inquiring into the bias, prejudice, motivation, and credibility of an opposing witness, his prior inconsistent statements or other facts, et cetera, et cetera. So it just it getting a mention, I think, is uh, interesting. And yeah, good luck to you, Iggy. Iggy. Now, we have this other file. Or no, first I want to go to this. So what I touched on earlier today in the show, I think this is huge. Well, no, actually, I don't think. I know this is huge. I know this is huge. And after the show, I was searching around and nobody was reporting it until later today, um, Chuck Colesto made a tweet of course, without so without any source or links, because that's how he rolls. And he was 200 characters if at the most, which just, just a one line. He didn't give it any detail because that's how he rolls. Anyway, what we found earlier today on page 17, haha, page 17, Mr. Danchenko was interviewed dozens of times. And during the course of those interviews, particularly when asked specific questions about Dolan, which was not often, Mr. Danchenko won told the FBI about the Moscow trips with, with Dolan. Two, told the FBI that Steele knew of Dolan. Three, told the FBI that not only was Dolan doing work for Olga Galkina, but that Mr. Danchenko himself had introduced them. And four, told the FBI that Dolan had connections and relationships with high-level Kremlin officials, including President Trump's personal spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. Indeed, when agents drafted a tw December 2017 communication in support of opening an investigation into Dolan, they included the information Mr. Danchenko provided them as support for opening the investigation. So I ask, did the FBI pay Danchenko as a CHS in order to obtain information on Chuck Dolan? Did the FBI open an investigation into Chuck Dolan in December 2017 or later based on that information? I really want the answers to those questions. And I got this feeling that just like with Joffe in the Sussman trial, we found out so much about Joffe through the course of that. We might find out about Dolan, so much about Dolan in the course of this trial. Now, I, I wrote a little bit more. I wanted to really make this point. I've been looking around and this seems like brand new information that I cannot believe has not gotten more attention. Mr. Danchenko informed the FBI. He traveled with Dolan. Steele knew of Dolan. Dolan was doing work with Galkina. Dolan had high up connections in the Kremlin and he provided information to the FBI that was used to support an investigation into Dolan. Are we going to find out at trial that Danchenko was made a CHS in order to get this information on Chuck Dolan? Guys, Dolan is Clinton inner circle. He was on the campaign staff of Bill Clinton, Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. He is currently on the board of the International Foundation of Electoral Services. I can't wait to find out more about this. Dolan not only served these, served on those campaigns, okay? Bill Clinton appointed Dolan to two four-year terms as the vice chairman of the United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. 
He also serves as executive director of the Democrat Governors Association, where he supported the election and re-election of Democratic governors in all 50 states. He was active in political campaigns. Dolan served as advisor to Senator Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign in Iowa and New Hampshire, and was a senior communications consultant to Senator John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. He was state chairman of the Virginia Clinton-Gore campaigns in 92 and 96, and a member of President Clinton's presidential exploratory committee. Clinton, inner circle. People sitting around saying, man, when is Durham going to get anywhere close to Clinton? And I can't tell you, I can't even count how many times I've seen somebody say, Danchenko's just a drunk, lying, Russian, has-been lawyer. He barely matters. Durham's only charging him with lying. This case doesn't even matter. Durham's wasting his time. He's just doing a cover-up job. Hmm. Well, some of that may be true, but in these court filings of Danchenko, of Durham against Danchenko and by Danchenko's own lawyers, this supposed cover-up job is having quite the opposite effect where it's exposing key Clintonistas like Chuck Dolan. And it's looking more and more likely or more and more probable that Danchenko was feeding the FBI information on this Clintonista. I'd say that's pretty big. I'd say that I say that Danchenko doing that is at least as big as the fact that Danchenko was an informant at all. Remember when we found that out, I asked, I wonder who he was informing on. We may have found out today. All right. Uh, real quick, Cody right here pointed out that Iggy's Twitter account was created on October 15th, 2020. His first or his second Twitter account, actually. He had another one a long years ago, years before this. But Igor Danchenko created his Twitter account on October 15th, 2020. Wrote back, I'm back. Hello, Twitter. I'm back with a new account. Look forward to catching up. The old account was, um, let me see. The old account is right here. Different handle. And this one is one where some other site called like LifeSite or something. What was it? Live Journal automatically uploaded his tweets to this. So he wasn't like active on here, but it you have to he has to follow you or something to have access. It's restricted. Um, but might that be a clue? You know that that goes to the fact that FBI terminated its source relationship with defendant in October 2020. So seems like around possibly October 15th, 2020 is when he got the news he was terminated as a source. And what did he do? Immediately started a Twitter account. Curious that. All right, climate audit. Now, I'm going to preface what climate audit is going to put forth, okay? 
I do not agree with all of his takes, but he is a very knowledgeable person and a very good analyst, and I have great respect for his work. I think he is a bit blackpilled, um, but I find his perspective interesting, and I think he has good discernment, and I think he is seeing something or seeing several things that are there, but his interpretation of them are... Um, you know, swayed by how he's been blackpilled and and whatnot on certain matters. Uh, you know, all these guys approach this subject matter from the standpoint that FBI is bad, thoroughly corrupt, needs to be destroyed, and they were always out to get Trump. And you guys know that that is not my my perspective. Um, although I'm very understanding of that perspective. But anyway, he buys into that narrative and that colors his explanation here. So as I read this, just keep that in mind. There's a new Janchenko filing today in response to the recent Durham motion. I mostly agree with it. In my opinion, as readers are aware, Danchenko overwhelmingly exposed Steele. He exposed the Steele hoax in January 2017. FBI then concealed Danchenko evidence to persecute Trump. Barr asked Durham to examine travesty, quote unquote, of FBI conduct in response to Danchenko revelations. Instead, Durham indicted the messenger. Now, see, you can get where his take is, and if you understand where he's coming from, his take makes sense. If you filter it a little bit for where I'm coming from, you know, I don't think FBI concealed Danchenko. I think mean, that was a that was a. I think that's a secondary effect of what they did. I think the real effect of what they did was after January 27, 17, they made him a source so that they could get at Dolan and others in this this conspiracy. It's my opinion. He doesn't share it. Thus, we arrive at the unsalubrious, unsalubrious spectacle of FBI and its supporters attempting to whitewash their past malice and incompetence as deadly do right innocence deceived by Russian disinformation. It's Hannity world. Within this Hannity world, Durham has just unleashed a full on high Mars artillery barrage of spitballs itemizing multiple supposed Danchenko lies, some of which would have been more convincing than what was in the indictment. Danchenko's counsel reasonably pointed out that Danchenko is being tried for the allegations in the indictment and argued against Durham's effort to piggyback other supposed bad acts into the trial as prejudicial, time-consuming, and not allowed. His points make sense to me. I'm not going to comment on the legal arguments, which do seem convincing, only on the factual issues on which our corner, the Spygate researcher corner of Twitter, has accumulated knowledge. I think he meant accumulated knowledge. Democrats' lawyers list seven topics, or Danchenko's lawyers. One, as I had already noted, Danchenko told FBI in January 2017 that source for his Ritz-Carlton rumor was Vorontsov. That'd be the IV that we saw in the filing earlier. Durham's recent motion made crazy claim that Danchenko had told FBI that his source was Million. Sears, Danchenko's lawyer, refutes using the same EC electronic communication excerpt that I had. And this is from the filing. It's, it's that, that same one we were looking at earlier today. Now, it looks like his thread broke right here. So if y'all will pause with, y'all bear with me. I am going to scroll back and find where it is. He's tweeted several times since writing this. But I will find it. It's unfortunate when it breaks like that, but it, it happens. 
on all of the social media sites. Okay, here we are. Sears aptly calls Durham's wild misrepresentations as disingenuous. He provides a logical explanation of context of June excerpt. FBI had asked Danchenko to speculate on identity of the person Steele had identified as source D. This seems to make total sense to me. Sears provides several reasons for excluding Durham's nonsense about source D, one of which seems overwhelming. D was not indicted for Danchenko was not indicted for Ritz Carlton allegations, but litigating them would obviously overwhelm every other consideration. It's a fair point. Durham falsely, falsely told court that the uncharged statements do not reflect conduct that is more sensational, disturbing, or prejudicial than the subject matter of the charged crimes. Sears acidly observed that water sports accusations are far more sensational. Now let's. It does seem like Durham is being false here. Like, why did he make try and qualify it that way? I want to give Durham the benefit of the doubt that he actually has more to this subject matter. And once we have it all, we'll understand. Because I think I think all this goes together. All of this fits together in some respect. Sears then discussed Durham's assertion that Denchenko's answer about whether his friends knew about his work with Orbis, that they didn't concealed that Dolan did and that this was material. However, it turns out that Denchenko had told the FBI about his Moscow trips with Dolan. That's the what we were just talking about. That Steele knew of Dolan and noted that defense had just received a December 2017 document in which FBI cited Denchenko's testimony about Dolan in their EC opening an investigation into Dolan. Sears also said that Denchenko was interviewed dozens of times. This is new. Previously, we'd only heard about three interviews with Horowitz, then three more in 2017 and earlier pleadings. Now we're told it's dozens. Now, I got to say, he skips over all the other information that I was, you know, I just went to present it to y'all and said, this is huge. Danchenko was obviously informing on Dolan, but Climate Audit or Stephen McIntyre skips over that. And I don't understand why they don't key in on it. I don't know. I think I feel like he has a blind spot to it, but I could be wrong. I, don't, I mean, again, I mean, no insult. I have a lot of respect. Sears then observed that it is unfair to inject this barrage of uncharged, misleading, or incomplete statements, since they will necessarily confuse analysis of the materiality of the statements actually charged. Durham's next spitball was an inflammatory email, which has been portrayed in media as an attempt to encourage the fabrication of evidence. Sears observed that the email did not do that, but was suggestion as to how Sidar might describe himself. In any event, seems like a sideshow. I noted new information that Denchenko had been interviewed dozens of times. Later in the interview, Sears says that Denchenko was a vital source of information to the U.S. government during his cooperation. He was relied upon to build other cases. What? And provide FBI insights into individuals and to areas the FBI was otherwise lacking because of the difficulty with which FBI was, in, was had in recruiting people from that part of the world. As an aside, I presume that one of FBI's difficulties in recruiting informants from Russia is that it was within CIA's mandate, and they were already doing so and wanted FBI to stay in its law enforcement lane. In any event, it appears that many of Danchenko's dozens of interviews with the FBI pertain to such espionage, and accordingly withdraw a comment made on another thread, uh, ignore that, Sears dismissed the notion that Danchenko was or had ever been an agent for Russian intelligence, a conclusion that seems to have been shared by FBI and Intel community, notwithstanding Durham's stridency. 
Nor does this information about Danchenko's services to the FBI support fanciful theories by some that Danchenko had previously been a Russian agent and the FBI was sending him back against Russian intel agencies as a double agent. However, I totally reject the idea that Danchenko's confidential services to the FBI, whatever they were, were important enough to hide him as a witness exposing the Steele dossier fraud. Not even close. Indeed, when you think about it, FBI officials have every reason in the world to overpraise Danchenko's contributions to their intelligence activities in order to launder their original concealment of Danchenko's expose of the Steele dossier fraud. Indeed, it's worse than that. If FBI foreign intelligence officials are impressed by gossip from Olga Galkina and Ivan Vorontsov as washed through Igor Danchenko, then FBI's foreign operations are worse than we thought and should be left to the CIA, as the CIA argues. Alternatively, and I've observed this before, Danchenko seems much smarter and more worldly than FBI counterintelligence doofuses like Strzok, Priestat, Moffa, the Looney, Otten, etc. So objectively, he probably would have been an improvement over any of them. In various arguments straining toward materiality, Durham invokes the same statement or other um, would have or or same statement or another would have triggered FBI to become aware of prior 2011 investigation Danchenko and thus be wary of, you know, Russian disinformation. But Sears points out that 2011 investigation was closed, that Crossfire agents were aware of 2011 investigation and factored it in, and that it was considered by independent confidential source review committee, and that the 2011 agents were consulted and did not object. Thus. Shipwrecked, if you're, ris- you're listening, talking about shipwreck crew, another account. None of Durham's spitballs connected to the 2011 investigation will stick to the wall. It was known about and factored in, all of which raises an interesting question. What was going on in September of 2020 when Durham notified Barr about the 2011 investigation of Danchenko? A notification that resulted in Danchenko being thrown out as CHS. So is that what happened? His status was terminated the following month in October because Durham notified Barr. Perhaps. With all due respect to Stephen McIntyre, I really do think, guys, that his hatred of the FBI and of agents involved in Crossfire Hurricane and other investigations because his interpretation of the facts and the context are that FBI is bad and was always out to get Trump has made it where he is not seeing what is right in front of his face. That Danchenko was caught and Danchenko exposed the fraud of the Steele dossier and was immediately recruited in order to get information on the rest of the criminal network that produced the Steele dossier and the criminals from the Hillary Clinton machine who were out to get, who were actually out to get Trump. It's right there in front of you. It's right there in front of you. And these lines about other investigations, other investigations. Let me go back. Let me go back and grab this. Control F. We search the word pawn. 
where did he pull this from? Where did he pull that quote from? Vital source. Let me search vital source. Okay, it's not from, oh, this is from a different, hold on, hold on. Yeah, that should be it. Here it is. Okay, yeah, I had opened the wrong one. My bad. Mr. Danchenko himself intends to elicit from government witnesses their general knowledge of Mr. Danchenko's prior investigation. But the details of that investigation are not relevant and, more importantly, are unproven. It would involve multiple levels of hearsay to establish the basis for the investigation, let alone prove the allegation, and resulted in no negative action or conclusion. Indeed, the investigation, this time with the 2011 investigation, was closed and to undersigned counsel's knowledge never reopened even after special counsel's investigation and indictment. Contrary to the special counsel's insinuations and allegations, we expect the jury will hear that Mr. Danchenko was a vital source of information to the U.S. government during the course of his cooperation and was relied upon to build other cases and open other investigations. As one supervisory special agent has agreed, quote, one of the upshots of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation has been a relationship with Mr. Danchenko, which has provided the FBI insights into individuals and to areas that it was otherwise lacking. Because of the difficulty with which the FBI has in recruiting people from that part of the world, the agent further agreed the FBI's relationship with Mr. Danchenko was, quote, one thing that in terms of usefulness really did result from this investigation. I'd say that's a, uh, I'd say that's another boom from this filing. I look forward to finding out what those other investigations are. Now, one more bit from Stephen McIntyre. He says, further reflections on the filing after 24 hours. Looks to me like Durham knew less than nothing about Mr. Danchenko's relationship with the FBI. I highly doubt that, Stephen. That FBI withheld relevant documents from Durham, which are now appearing, and that Durham team is not merely losing, but being destroyed. I'm afraid, guys, this is going to be a take we see promulgate across the conservative incorporated world. My theory... One, Durham is in a proxy war with FBI, which controls the airspace and has huge artillery advantage. FBI lured Durham into an offensive on the Danchenko front, which, unknown to Durham, was heavily defended, and FBI is now disseminating or decimating the exposed Durham infantry. Otherwise, it's hard to explain why Durham was or appears to be so totally ignorant of Danchenko's relationship with FBI, or that multiple FBI agents would be stepping up toward the, to, to forward to vouch for Danchenko's importance as an FBI source. Everyone needs to steal themselves for an orgy of pearl-clutching FBI testimony about how Durham's reckless actions and equally reckless release of EC in July 2020 exposed valuable FBI source, endangering sources and methods in national security, full deep state revenge. The tactical brilliance of FBI luring Durham into an offensive on Danchenko front is that it totally obfuscates the original and underlying question of how and why Danchenko exposed uh, exposure of sealed dossier got buried and whitewashes the FBI's lawfare insurrection under Comey and McCabe. 
Also, we can be sure that, that we are not seeing any relevant documents on how and why Danchenko was granted CHS, stat, CHS status so quickly and currently in March 2017. The FBI will willingly produce documents exculpatory of Danchenko, but not inculpatory documents. Somewhat offsetting my comments yesterday is that the information about Danchenko being a CHS was first in Durham's motion, document 78, not in defense. I should have noted this yesterday. I wonder when Durham learned about CHS. I don't think Horowitz knew. Now, total respect to him, guys, like I've been saying. But this, I mean, this right here is like, it reminds me of TDS. <laughs> I'm sure he would be offended if he heard me say that. But it does. It reminds, it's like a, it's like, it's like FBI derangement syndrome. Where he literally can't see that Durham is exposing. And Durham is... We're learning more and more about all of this and he and and people who are so blackpilled on Durham and blackpilled on the FBI can't see that this news of Danchenko being a CHS feeds the one feeds the narrative of FBI bad FBI corruption and there may be a thread there that does connect to some corrupt players making this happen but the fact that Danchenko gave information to the FBI on these other known criminal actors within this conspiracy is massive. It mean, guys, it means that Danchenko flipped in 2017. This means that Danchenko flipped in 2017, spring of 2017, that far back and started informing on the people who were helping him and he was working for. But these guys have such a hate on for the FBI that they can't even process that information. Okay. Now, Durham. Daryl made this filing. Government's opposition to the defendant's motion to dismiss, which the judge still has not ruled on. And like I've told you, it is possible the judge is going to strike some of the charges against Danchenko, he might just say, look, you're charging him for five lies, but really it's two or three because some of the lies are the same lie, but you're charging him multiple times for it. That could happen. It could, but it may not. The judge may say motion to dismiss is denied. This deserves to go in front of a jury and we'll let the jury decide. And the jury may end up deciding, eh, I think he lied. Really, he lied to you twice because one of the lies is the same lie just three times so we'll see we'll see the united states of america by and through its attorney john special counsel john h durham respectfully submits this opposition to the defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment for failure to state an offense factual background the defendant is charged with a five-count indictment with making materially false statements to the fbi in a criminal case, a motion to dismiss tests not the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the indictment, but rather whether, but rather whether, thanks Durham, but rather whether the indictment sufficiently charges the offense set forth against the defendant. Accordingly, an indictment need only contain a plain, concise, and, def 
indefinite written statement of the essential facts constituting the offense charged. This requirement is satisfied when the indictment contains the elements of the offense charged, fairly informs the defendant of the charge, and enables the defendant to plead double jeopardy as a defense to future prosecutions for the same offense. Whereas here, a motion has been filed to dismiss an indictment containing multiple counts, each count is viewed as a separate indictment for purposes of determining its sufficiency. Yet while each account must stand on its own, incorporated and re-alleged paragraphs from one another count must be considered. Ultimately, to warrant dismissal of an indictment, the defendant must demonstrate that the allegations in the indictment, even if true, would not state an offense. Quote, it is elementary that a motion to dismiss on an, an indictment implicates only the legal sufficiency of its allegations, not the proof offered by the government. The proof is at trial. The defendant asked this court to dismiss the indictment, arguing that the FBI's questions to the defendant were fundamentally ambiguous or, and or that the defendant's responses were either literally true, non-responsive, or ambiguous. The defendant alternatively argues that the defendant's statements were not material to any function or decision of the FBI. As addressed below, the arguments set forth by the defendant are plainly questions of fact within the purview of a jury. Yeah, Durham's going to argue, Judge, let this go before a jury and let them decide. You don't need to decide, decide this yourself right now. As such, the government respectfully submits the court should deny the defendant's motion to dismiss. One, the questions posed by the FBI were not fundamentally ambiguous, nor were the defendant's answers literally true. The defendant exhausts the majority of his 25-page motion, attempting to shoehorn the valid false statement counts at issue here into two extremely narrow and rarely sustained defenses to false statement charges, literal truth and fundamental ambiguity. As an initial matter, whether any of the counts in the indictment lend themselves to such a defense is plainly a factual issue that must be decided by the jury based on all of the evidence in the case. Under controlling Fourth Circuit law, the court must only look to face of the, to the face of the indictment to resolve a motion to dismiss, and here the indictment properly alleges false statements. The Bronson literal truth defense is exceptionally narrow and only applies where a defendant's alleged false statements are indisputably literally true. A question is fundamentally ambiguous only when it is, quote, is not a phrase with a meaning about which men of ordinary intellect could agree nor one which could be used with mutual understanding by a questioner and answer, answerer unless it was defined at the time it were sought and offered as testimony. But a defendant cannot establish that questions are fundamentally ambiguous by isolating them from their context or by showing that words used in a question are amenable to multiple meanings or that an answer might generate a number of different interpretations. Where a question is merely susceptible to multiple interpretations and a defendant's answer is true under one understanding of the question but false under another, there is no fundamental ambiguity as a matter of law, and the jury determines whether the defendant knew his statement was false. Even statements that, quote, could be literally true in isolation can support a false statement conviction if they are, quote, materially untrue in, quote, the context in which the statements were made. The charged statements here fall squarely within the realm of properly alleged false statements. On June 15th, 2017, which would be after he was a CHS, the defendant was interviewed by FBI. During this interview, which was recorded, the FBI's agents questioned, agents questioned two defendant about Charles Chuck Dolan, anonymized in the indictment as PR Executive One, was not fundamentally ambiguous 
or even arguably ambiguous. To the contrary, the agent's question was decidedly straightforward. The agent asked, okay, so you've had, was there any, but you had never talked to Chuck Dolan about anything that showed up in the dossier, right? The defendant said no. The FBI agent suggested, you don't think so? The defendant, Danchenko, replied, no. We talked about, you know, related issues perhaps, but no, 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 nothing specific. The defendant argues that the reasonable reading of this question is whether Mr. Danchenko and Dolan talked about the company reports themselves after they were published. As an initial matter, the question must be viewed in context, and given the context discussed below, the defendant's reading is entirely unreasonable. Indeed, the central focus of this interview was to uncover the defendant's subsources who provided the information that would later appear in the Steele reports. The defendant had previously met with the FBI on multiple occasions over the course of six months to the same end and made it expressly clear to them that he had communicated with his subsources during the 2016 time period in order to collect information that Steele would later include in the dossier. Whether the defendant had communicated with Dolan, or anyone for that matter, about the information in the Steele reports after they were published would be of little, if any, mo moment to the FBI, which was in endeavoring to uncover the defendant's sources who provide the information underlying the dossier. Further, the question immediately preceding the, the question at issue was whether Mr. Steele and Danchenko had other sources beside the defendant for the dossier reports. Footnote. The defendant spends significant time arguing about the ambiguity of the agent's question regarding whether Charles Dolan was an additional source for Christopher Steele. This question, however, does not form the basis of the false statement charge, false statement charge in count one. Rather, the charge false statement relates to whether the defendant spoke to Mr. Dolan about any material contained in the Steele reports. A distinction with a difference. Yep. Or a difference with a distinction, however you want to say it. Thus, viewed in the proper context of the extensive interview and the multiple prior interviews, the question was clearly directed at learning whether the defendant had communicated with Dolan about the information that later appeared in the Steele reports. The defendant next seizes on the fact that the question posed by the agent used the word talked rather than a broader term such as communicated or a more specific term like emailed. Courts have repeatedly held, however, that a defendant cannot establish that a question is, quote, fundamentally ambiguous by isolating it from its context or by showing that words used in question are amenable to multiple meanings. Simply plumbing a question for post hoc ambiguity does not establish fundamental ambiguity where the evidence demonstrates the defendant understood the question in context and gave a knowingly false answer. In this case, the defendant made clear to the FBI in numerous meetings that he had communicated with his subsources through a variety of messages, including email, phone, social media, and in person. If therefore it would be nonsensical for the FBI to intentionally limit the scope of its questions to phone calls and in-person meetings with Dolan. Well, that's that argument destroyed, isn't it? Plainly, the law does not contemplate such peculiarities, blah, blah, blah. Importantly, the government's evidence will demonstrate that the defendant plainly understood that the word talked was directed at all forms of communication with Charles Dolan. In fact, the defendant himself demonstrated an understanding that his email communications were relevant to the FBI's inquiry because he chose to provide them with selective emails and social media postings on multiple occasions over the course 
of his relationship with the FBI. So now we learn that Danchenko was giving his emails and social media messages to the FBI over the course of him being a CHS. In the same vein, the defendant argues his answers to the agent's question were literally true because the defendant did not talk with Mr. Dolan, but rather exchanged emails. This argument is equally unveiling. The defendant next argues that the distinction between talking about anything or related issues and something specific is best vague. Mm, it's not that vague. To the contrary, there is nothing vague about the defendant's answer. He said, no, 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 nothing specific. And the purported information that Denchenko obtained from Dolan concerning Manafort and which appeared in the Steele reports was not a quote unquote related issue. It was the issue being discussed in the relevant report. An answer that is unresponsive, blah, blah, blah. We already know that. In any event, the evidence at trial will demonstrate that, in fact, Dolan and the defendant did discuss very specific allegations regarding the Trump campaign, allegations that appeared in a still report a mere two days after the defendant received the information from Dolan. The defendant's attempts to claim literal truth with respect to the statements concerning Sergey Million are equally unveiling. As noted above, the Bronson literal truth defense Blah, blah, blah. Here, defendant does not dispute that his statements were responsive to questions posed by the FBI about contacts with Mr. Million. On that basis alone, the literal truth, literal truth defense is unavailable to the defendant. In addition to this fatal deficiency, the defendant's self-serving and conclusory assertions as to the literal truth of his statements to the FBI concerning his contacts with Million could not satisfy the literal truth defense. In fact, the defendant did not provide the FBI with the two emails he sent to Million. That, on their face directly contradict his claim that he believed he spoke to me and on the phone. See, this is really interesting. Why, why was Sergey, I mean, why was Danchenko being deceitful on these things? He's protecting someone or something. The conflict between the emails, which made no mention of a call or missed meeting in New York, and his own statements create an issue of fact for the jury, and not an issue of law that can be resolved by a court prior to trial. Further undermining these arguments is the fact that the defendant stated that information contained in the June 2016 Steele report might have come from Sergey Million, notwithstanding the fact that his first attempt to contact Million by email was not until July 21, 2016, an email that he conveniently withheld from the FBI. The government also plans to introduce evidence which reflects that every phone call received by the defendant from July 21st through July 2016 through August 20 see by the defendant from July 21st 2016 through August 16th on the phone number that he provided Sergey Million was from individuals other than Million who were known to the defendant either from his contact list or other means boom Durham knows who, who was on the phone. And thus, the defendant's contention about an anonymous caller, quote-unquote, is not supported by evidence. Now, we have some footnotes here. The evidence at trial will establish the defendant first reached out the million by July 21st, 2016. The contention that the defendant may have received an anonymous call from someone he believed to be million on an internet-based application, maybe it was a Facebook call, is also not supported by the evidence. Indeed, at no time did the defendant inform million that he could be contacted on an internet-based application to say nothing of the particular application million should utilize. Oh, Danchenko, you are so busted on this phone call thing. 
Again, the defendant's statements concerning Million cannot be viewed in isolation, but must be viewed in the context and scope of his previous interviews with the FBI, including the January 2017 interviews. The indictment sufficiently alleges that the defendant's false statements to the FBI were material. The defendant's arguments based on materiality are similarly unavailing. Whether the government has proved facts beyond a reasonable doubt, illustrating that a false statement is material to an agency decision is a mixed question of fact and law typically resolved by a properly instructed jury. Again, Durham pushing, hey, let the jury decide if this was material. Uh, I can scroll past. This is all legalese stuff and cases being cited, which is all good and well, but we're going to skip it. Moreover, the capacity of a false statement to influence a government agency or function must be measured at the point in time that the statement was uttered. Yep. Finally, materiality is not dependent upon the believability of a false statement. More legalese. We're skipping it. The defendant's false statement with respect to Charles Dolan's role as a source for the Steele reports was plainly material. The defendant's sole argument appears to be that Mr. Dolan provided the defendant with information from public news sources and thus his false statement could not be material. As an initial matter, this assertion is simply incorrect. Mr. Dolan's August 20th, 2016 email to the defendant clearly states that he received information from a, quote, GOP friend of mine who provided information both contained in the political article Dolan attached and additional information not contained in the article. Indeed, the email states that, quote, she, the purported GOP friend, also told me that Corey Lewandowski, who hates Manafort and still speaks to Trump regularly, played a role. He is said to be doing a happy dance over it. This information is not contained in the article. Thus, it is only reasonable that the defendant would assume this information or other information contained in the email was from a non-public source. It also is of no help to the defendant that it, as it will become clear through Dolan's testimony at trial. Whoa, 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 whoa. It also is of no help to the defendant that, as will become clear through Dolan's testimony at trial. Chuck Dolan's going to testify. Guys, guys. Chuck Dolan Jr. is going to testify at this trial. Dolan fabricated the genesis of this information. Dolan's going to get on the stand and admit he, he fabricated this. Indeed, Dolan's fabrication makes the defendant's false statement all the more material because it underscores that the FBI known, had the FBI known Dolan was the source of these allegations, it might have interviewed him and determined that it was not, in fact, reliably sourced. Moreover, the defendant misunderstands the government's theory of materiality. The defendant's lie was material because, as the indictment plainly lays out, had the FBI known that Charles Dolan was a source for the Steele reports, it is more likely that they would have or should have, catch that, or should have, also interviewed Dolan. Given Dolan's relationship to several key players who appear in the Steele reports in proximity to the defendant at the time, Indeed, Dolan had relationships with, relationships with several Russian government officials, including but not limited to Dmitry Peskov, Mikhail Kalugin, Sergei Kislyak. Yep, 
Further, Dolan was pre- present with the uh, Dolan was present with the defendant in June 2016 at the Ritz Carlton, Moscow, when the defendant allegedly personally gathered information on Donald Trump's reported salacious activity there. Again, had the FBI known that Dolan was a source for the Steele reports, in addition to his ties, the FBI logically would have interviewed Dolan. The fact that the FBI was aware that Dolan maintained some of these relationships and failed to interview Dolan is of no moment. Hmm. The defendant's false statements with respect to Sergey Million are also plainly material. The defendant argues that the false statements could not be materially material because, quote, none of these statements could have impacted the government's decision to obtain its first or second FISA warrant against Carter Page, which were issued on or about October 21st, 2016, and January 12th, 2017, because Mr. Danchenko's statements were made months later, with the first charge statement occurring on March 16th, 2017. Further, the defendant argues that the, that the defendant's false statements made on October 24th, 2017 and November 16th, 2017 should be dismissed, quote, because they occurred after the government obtained its last FISA warrant against Carter Page on or about June 29th, 2017, and therefore could not have impacted the government's decision to obtain any of the FISA warrants. The defendant fundamentally misunderstands the government's obligations to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. As an initial matter, two of the defendant's false statements were made during the pendency of the FISA surveillance against Carter Page. Notwithstanding when the false statements were made, had the defendant been truthful about his purported interaction with Sergey Million, the FBI and DOJ would have been under an affirmative obligation to inform the FISA court at any time during the pendency of the surveillance of Page or thereafter about the information that would have undermined the statements it had made in its four FISA applications. Yep. Okay. And then it goes to restate those rules that, or state those rules that, yeah, if they had found this out, they would have been under an obligation to go inform the FISA court, which would have impacted the surveillance on Carter Page. Had the FISC FISA court known of these misinterpretations, it would have terminated. It would have terminated the surveillance Carter Page and/or ordered the FBI and DOJ to destroy the information it had already collected. The defendant next argues that his false statements regarding Million are not material because he provided the FBI with the email that the indictment now alleges is the smoking gun that proves Danchenko did not, in fact, believe he spoke with Chamber President One Million. The defendant, however, conveniently omits pertinent and inculpatory facts from his argument. Indeed, in his January 2017 interview with the FBI, the defendant stated in sum that he emailed Million twice and received no response back. The defendant further stated that following his second email to Million, he received a telephone call in late July 2016 from a, quote, anonymous caller he believed to be Million. He further stated that that during this purported call, the defendant and the anonymous individual he believed to be Million agreed to meet in New York City at the end of July. During the January 2017 interviews, the defendant did, in fact, provide the FBI with a Russian-language email to Dmitry Zlodarev, anonymized in the indictment as Russian journalist 2, dated August 24, 2016, which stated that Million had not responded to his emails. But as disclosed above, the defendant did not provide the FBI with the two additional emails that he sent Million including an August 18th, 2016 email, which made clear that Zanchenko had not, in fact, heard back from him by that date, thus making a late July phone call and planned meeting in New York an impossibility. Put another way, 
The defendant wanted the FBI to believe that he had emailed Million twice in July 2016, received no response, but received a phone call from someone who believed to be Million in late July. The government will argue at trial that the defendant provided the FBI with the August 24, 2016 email to Zlotarev, Zlotarev in an effort to show that he had, in fact, asked Zlotarev for Million's contact information. However, reflecting the fact that the defendant could not keep his lie straight, exactly what I was thinking, he provided the August 24th, 2016 email, not realizing it would demonstrate that he had not, in fact, spoken to the anonymous caller. He told the FBI he believed to be million. So Danchenko out gave the evidence to the FBI himself that he that <laughs> yeah, he's totally he effed up bad. The defendant cites no law, nor could he, stating that a defendant's unintentional exposure of his own prior misstatements undermines their falsity or materiality. Wow. Wow. In conclusion, for the foregoing reasons, the court should deny the defendant's motion. Wow, guys. Dolan is going to testify. Okay, in Durham's response, we just learned that Charles Dolan's going to testify against Danchenko in this trial. And that Danchenko was a source for multiple investigations. Oh, man. Oh, this is getting good. This is getting so good. Okay. Nailed that at just about one hour. So, thank you guys for... Uh, all you do to support the show, really appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and end this and upload it. And I will be live again on Wednesday. If you think anybody would be interested in the work that I do, please consider going to my clips channel on Rumble and sharing them some clips from the show to see if they, they like what I do. And then if they like it, they can go to the link in the description and watch the whole episode. Um, appreciate you guys very much. God bless each and every one of you. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. And man, Durham's getting some hits in here and Danchenko's defense and Danchenko himself. I mean, <laughs> oh, if this is supposed to be a cover up job, it's the worst cover up job in history. Y'all have a good night. See you later.